I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. Hey, how are you doing, podcasts? Adam Buxton here. And I'm reporting to you from a farm track in the east of England. It is early June 2022. And uh, I'm, I'm going for a walk with my dog friend. Keeping it on message, not mixing it up. Haven't reported to you from anywhere other than the farm track for quite a while, have I really? doesn't have to be the farm track does it but that's just the way things work out mainly I'm here most of the time which is quite nice I like working from home but every now and again it is nice to see different parts of the world and actually I got that opportunity over the last couple of weeks I went to visit a friend in Spain and also catch up with some various family members and All sorts of other bits and pieces that I've been letting slide for too long. You know, from emails to replying to letters and just admin and that kind of thing. That I do my best to keep up with, but you think, I'll just, I'll do that in a second. I'm just doing this thing at the moment and then I'll get back to that. And then six months go by. You probably thought I was... Hanging out with the Laura, Laura, Lully Queen and celebrating the Lully Jubilee. Oh, hanging out with beautiful Eddie Sheeran and Elisa Keys and singing all kinds of songs that don't really have anything to do with Queen Jubilee. But I wasn't. I was doing all that other stuff instead. Rosie says hi. She's up ahead. Bouncing. Anyway, listen. I'm going to tell you right now, podcasts, about podcast number 180. This one features a rambling conversation with British musician, radio host, and now writer, Jarvis Branson Cocker. Cockerfax. Jarvis, currently aged 58, was born and raised in the English city of Sheffield, South Yorkshire. The first incarnation of Jarvis's band Pulp was formed at the end of the 1970s, when he was still at school, aged just 15. After a decade and a half that included line-up and style changes, art school, hiatuses and injuries, Pulp's 1994 album, their fourth, I think, His and Hers, caught the imagination of British music fans with songs filled with catchy hooks and lyrics about societal dysfunction, pervy teachers and sexual yearning delivered by Jarvis in a voice that ranged from sneering yelps to confessional whispers. Pulp's 1995 album, Different Class, pushed them even further into the mainstream with a series of hit singles that included the enduring anthem of class tourism, Common People. 
By the time Jarvis attended the Brit Awards in 1996, Pulp were one of the biggest bands in the UK. And when, after a few drinks, Jarvis invaded the stage to poke fun at the messianic pomposity of a performance by Michael Jackson, he became, for a while, fodder for the mainstream media. Ugh, the mainstream media. The stresses and strains of fame in the years after that incident bled into the atmosphere that pervaded Pulp's 1998 album, This Is Hardcore. And after one final album, We Love Life, Pulp split in 2002. The band have since reunited for a few live shows around 2011 to 2013, but the last couple of decades have seen Jarvis release five further albums and several singles of his own material, as well as collaborations with other artists like Chili Gonzalez and covers of classic French pop songs, which appear on his 2021 album Chanson d'ennui Tip Top. My conversation with Jarvis took place in a nice little studio at his publisher's offices in London back in late February of this year, 2022, just before the publication of Jarvis's book, Good Pop, Bad Pop, which is a beautifully illustrated series of memories and musings about music and life in bands, inspired by souvenirs and personal effects discovered in Jarvis's loft. We spoke about the Beatles, the perils of nostalgia, finding yourself by falling out of a window, losing yourself by throwing great shapes on the dance floor, the weirdness of pop stardom, and a few of the objects which Jarvis brought in to show me that feature in his Good Pop, Bad Pop book. We began our conversation by talking about the effect that certain sounds can have on people. For my money, whether he's singing or speaking, the sound of Jarvis's voice is always melodious. As listeners to his Sunday service show on Six Music, which ran from 2010 to 2017, will attest. So I hope you enjoy the following hour, luxuriating in a warm, sonic bath of pine-fresh Jarvis. Mmm. Back at the end for a bit more waffle, but right now, with JC, here we go. like a bribe to be nice to me but there's some cakes here you bought pastries i have to admit that they're a day old (laughs) that's all right but uh, they're nice it's like that it's like a coconut macaroon type yeah oh that's nice yeah except i won't have it now because i've made the mistake of eating on the podcast in the past and the wave of fury that i got from listeners oh really was uh, memorable too casual they don't like the sound. You know, there's oh, right, people right. with kind of... They get triggered by eating sounds. Mm. 
Some people might like it. Misophonia, I think yeah. it's called. I'm sure there are people who like it, like yeah, ASMR was, people. Have you investigated that? ASMR? Yeah. Only in a very superficial way, just to find out what it is, and I've listened to some of the things. I don't like it because I don't like people whispering. I do. Oh, you do do. That's Of course <laughs> you do. You're one of the top whisperers. You're a musical whisperer. Yeah, but I do... I haven't investigated it very thoroughly, but I like the idea that somehow it's just the sound of the voice coming to you. And and don't they do something like rub hairbrushes and things like that? Yeah. <laughs> and, and that sounds can somehow trigger some pleasurable feeling inside your mind. Yeah. From the one article I read about it, that seemed to be the idea. Yeah, that's exactly it. I mean, there's probably a whole Jarvis Cocker section in the ASMR library. That's I mean, that's essentially what the Sunday so. service was, really, wasn't it? was a form of early ASMR for the six music listeners. Well, I like to think so. I, I like to think that maybe people were kind of lulled into some, not completely unconscious state, but, you know, like semi-conscious. Because I think, you know, like those times when you, sometimes when you wake up and you hear a piece of music or, or something, it, it seems to somehow get through the defences that you normally put up and go straight into and make a really big impression. I remember once waking up and um, the long and winding road, you know, the Beatles song was sure. playing. And something about Paul McCartney's voice on that was really, it was like he was really inside my mind telling me a story, you know, it was really touching. Did you watch Get Back? I did, yeah. I was a bit, um, are you a, a big Beatles fan? Well, I think a lot of people have said this, but I didn't realise how big a fan I was until I watched Get Back. Right. They've always been there in the background, and I certainly went through a phase in my teens where I was discovering their albums for the first time, and that's all I listened to. But I never thought of myself as a massive fan. You write about them a bit in the book, right? Yeah, because I think cause I'm a little bit older than you. Yeah. You're 1963, I'm 1969. Right, yeah, so... The Beatles were number one, I, th I think I mentioned that, you know, th when I was born. Obviously, I wasn't aware of that as I popped out. Yeah. Um, but then they were kind of there in the background and then weirdly split up just around the time, you know, when I was seven, when you start to actually have memories, don't you? I mean, I don't remember much before the age of seven. Odd little things, but not... I don't have a sense of myself really knowing what was going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, they were a kind of... So I was into them, and as a, and then as a kind of slightly older child, in my early teens, I was a bit obsessed and tried to... I would stay in in the holidays and try and tape songs of theirs off the radio, because they still used to play in quite a lot on the radio in those days. Um, so, yeah, I, I, so, that, so I was a little bit uh, wary of watching Get Back because of that. I didn't want the, uh, that wonderful illusion to be spoiled. But it wasn't. And um, I liked their work ethic. You know, because they, they started just after New Year and, and they were getting there reasonably early in the morning, like before midday, and, and, and working. Not John. He was coming in late. Well, he was, but he was still working. You know, they, they weren't all sitting around saying, aren't we great? We're the Beatles. Yeah. Were there elements that reminded you of dynamics in pulp when you watched that? Well, at the start of it, um, like I started watching it and my 
my partner, my girlfriend Kim, was there, and she lasted about twenty minutes. She said, "Is it is anything going to happen in this program?" <laughs> I suppose I'm used to that those things. You know, I mean, being in a band is boring most of the time. You know, because you just sat around and you've got all that thing. Oh no, it goes like that, and it goes like that, and then let's try it like this, and you know, the endless kind of sitting around and trying things and. So I did think to myself, am I really going to sit through eight hours of a rehearsal? And and that is what, again, that's what I think made me wary of watching Get Back because the Beatles' music is kind of unassailable and strangely perfect with not many bad songs. I didn't want it to be spoilt by seeing the the bad side of it or the boring side. I, I, I kind of wanted them to stay perfect. But somehow, magically, they have them. Yeah, well, that's probably credit to... Peter Jackson for judiciously editing all that footage. But still, some of those moments, including that an ama- amazing bit in the first one where Paul McCartney sits down, starts noodling, and within five minutes he's got Get Back. Mm. That's when I knew, like, oh, okay, this is going to be pretty good. Yeah, and I also like the way, because obviously everybody knew that Yoko was hanging around. Yeah. But then, you know, George has got his kind of Harry Krishna guy sitting in the corner. Yes. And then at one point, uh, Linda comes down with her daughter from another relationship. And, and she's kind of like just running around whilst this trying to, you know, and I like the fact that they were trying to, because they obviously, you know, they grew up famous. And then they were getting to an age where you might want to get married, you might want to have kids. And they were kind of trying to do it while still making a record. And when Yoko and... John started wailing, and everyone sort of got into it. And McCartney even joined in. And that whole idea that everyone was sitting around glowering at John and Yoko, like, why is he brought his girlfriend here, kind of thing, which is what we were given to mm, understand mm. was the situation. That was totally dispelled. Yeah. It was great. Get my notes, even though I may not actually need my notes. But I did make a lot of notes in the course of reading your book, which I enjoyed so much. Well, thank you so much resonated i've got too many notes now so maybe i'll just sort of hit them arbitrarily but before then in the spirit of bringing back objects from an attic raid which essentially is what the book is right yes it's 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 all based on uh, there's an attic in the top room of a house that i did used to live in for a short while and now some friends of mine live there and i during the time I was there, I stored stuff there, and then I also just threw stuff in there, just for it to be out of the way. And then um, I believe that you have quite a lot of things that you've hold, held on to from the past. You know, I I wonder why one does that. For me, it's always like the idea that it's going to come in useful one day, or I, I don't know. So from time to time, this loft would bother me, because I'd think, you know, there's... There must be some important things or, or something's there and, and I should deal with it. Uh, but I never really got round to it. And then eventually I got round to it and that's what the book is. Really. Well, it's, I, I don't actually, I shouldn't do a spoiler at this point, should I? I don't get to the end of it, but I mean, I'd grappled with some of it. Yeah. Were you intimidated by the process? Because it can be dangerous, especially when one passes the age of 50, mm. I reckon. Yeah. Looking back... When I was younger, used to be fun. I liked nostalgia. I liked it every time I moved house and I had to rationalise all my junk, as it were. 
and the process of going through and chucking stuff away and finding old diaries and knickknacks and mementos was enjoyable. And then suddenly, when I started feeling a little older and I had children and I had more of a defined sense of mortality, it wasn't fun anymore. Mm. Did you find that? Um, I'm sure that's got something to do with it. There's also a more um, practical reason as well, because this loft isn't really a loft. It's more, you know, like when somebody has a loft conversion done, so you get an extra room in a house. Mm -hmm. And so then you end up with a quite a, a triangular room, don't you? Because you've got the, the roof shape. As you describe it, Toblerone space. Yes, there you are. So, so, and, and then just in this particular room, just the sides are, are partitioned off and made into some storage space. So they're only like three foot high and then go down to nothing. So just physically, I was starting to think, well, I better go in there soon because I just won't be able to get in. <laughs> it, you know, I won't be able to bend down far enough or, yeah. or, or I'll get in and I'll get stuck. You'll or have whatever. to send a, a Victorian child in there. Yeah, so, so, so I had to kind of to deal with it, yeah. Mm. Uh, in the course of writing my memoirish book, I found a thing that my dad sent to me, an email, mm. about this sort of thing. Because I'd asked him about his thoughts uh, around being older, old age. I was writing a thing and about what it would be like to be old and uh, asked him for some observations. And he talked about heading into the attic literally and metaphorically one goes into the attic looking for reminders and is overwhelmed by the accumulation of things most of which have been completely or in freudian analysis probably purposefully forgotten it's dangerous stuff and can result in severe emotional distress the mistakes one made the wrongs endured or inflicted on others the hopes shattered the irreplaceable losses suffered the projects of high promise unfulfilled so I think you're getting an idea of the kind of person my dad was. Well, everybody's like that, though, aren't they? I mean, um, yeah, I suppose what I found, one thing that saved me maybe from going too much into a kind of uh, state of morbidity or whatever mm. was the fact that I also kind of used it as a bit of a bin because it was like, uh, say, if my mum was coming down to the house and the house was untidy, I would just kind of get all the things that were lying around and just throw them in there. Yeah. And so sometimes just rubbish would end up in there. So I brought a couple of things from there. So, you know, like, so a lot of the things are actually objects without any too much personal resonance, you know. So this is a, maybe I can make this, make a sound. This could be a bit ASMR. Ooh, Ooh wasn't that nice? Now, can you guess, listener, what that is? It's a plastic container being opened, but mm. what? Let's give one more go. It's a mini polo dispenser. I don't know if you, they make these anymore, do they? I never saw that in the first place. It's like it's in the shape of a large polo, but it's plastic and it has an opening hatch. And that takes you down in the book, a, uh, a memory rabbit hole of your time living in what was known as, remind me what the oh, name the, of the place? The, the Wicker. Which the is, Wicker. Yeah, which is a part of Sheffield, yeah. Yeah, I was living in a, I had a friend who uh, was offered a flat rent-free in return for looking after this old factory building that had been converted into like band rehearsal rooms and there was a model railway enthusiast centre, table tennis things. 
and I, I lived there with him. And the polo thing happened because he, he allowed someone to live there who he knew uh, from school who'd had a polo addiction at school. But that was in the days before sugar-free polos. So with with the result that he actually was wearing dentures by the time he was 18 because he'd, he'd rotted all his teeth away. Mate. Mm. And Don't then do it. Don't do it. But your description of life at the wicker with Tim was quite hair-raising. It does seem to have been a kind of uh, watershed moment for you, though, as a person embracing the kind of more artistic side of yourself and that lifestyle of having all sorts of random people coming and going through this place to the extent that Tim decided he had to get rid of all the chairs to discourage people from hanging around too long. Yeah, well, that was quite a genius move of his, really. You know, at the time when I moved into that flat, uh, it was just after I'd left school and... That was, we were in deep in Thatcher's Britain then. So mm. just about everybody that I knew was on the dole, especially people in bands, because you could still kind of get, well, you could get supplementary benefit without ever having worked. Halcyon days, really. Yeah. So so you could leave, you know, you could be in a band and, and still get a little bit of money. And because this factory was kind of very near to the centre of town, it became a, a popular stopping-off point in what was known as the dole-strolling circuit, you know. So people would wander around aimlessly and then come there for a free cup of tea or whatever and then often not leave. So my friend Tim, whose flat it was, came up with this very good idea of just getting rid of all the chairs in the whole building so that people would come and have a cup of tea and then kind of look awkwardly around for somewhere to sit and then there wasn't anywhere so then as soon as they'd finished the tea they had to go really but it it had an impact on us because uh, (laughs) like if you wanted to eat your dinner you had to go through this rigmarole of having like a tin tray on on legs and sitting on the floor to do it which I did for a while Uh, (laughs) leaning against the wall with your legs stretched out yeah yeah (laughs) yeah which is yeah that's less than ideal it was less than ideal, but it was um, it was probably worth it not to have uh, some of these nutters just like jabbering <laughs> at you all the time. You know, you, at least you got a bit of peace. But it wasn't there that you fell out of the window, or no, was it? No, luckily, no. I would have. No, it wasn't. Yeah, because you were right at the top of the yeah, of that. Yeah, so place. I would have killed myself there. Yeah, but but it was yeah it was it was around that time that I fell out of a window. Yeah, and to summarize the story. You'd seen someone else do a trick where they disappeared out of a window and then came in a different window or something? Yeah, it was... Um, <laughs> yeah. No, but that's the kind of thing that somebody would do at a party, you know. Sure. It, and it was. It was at a party. And and it was a, it was an oldish house. So um, somebody pulled up the sash window, uh, went out onto the window ledge, and then there was another window just, you know, like maybe three feet further along the wall and then they kind of reached around the exterior of the house got onto the next window ledge pulled up the window and came back in and it's so you know there was just this brief moment when they went they passed out around the outside of the building and i thought it, i don't know why it made a big impression on me i just thought wow that's really cool great great trick and then i attempted to do the same trick in order to impress a girl that i'd gone back to her place and it was just a bit awkward you know when you kind of um 
can't think of something to say or whatever. And so I thought, oh, yeah, I, I, look at this. And uh, But she was living in quite a modern apartment block, and their windows were these ones that are like a metal frame, and, and it's it's hinged in the middle. So you, you, you kind of do the catch, and then you push it. So the bottom part of the window goes outside the building, and the top part comes inside. Like I said, an old-school blackboard that you could flip yeah, around. Yeah, so, so the thing is that there was no way I could go out onto that window ledge and stand erect mm-hmm. and go around the outside of the building because the window was poking out. But So I should have just let it go then and thought of some other way of impressing it. But I don't know, for some reason, I just thought, oh, I'm going to have a go and said, well, um, okay, I'm, what I'm going to do is I'm going to hang from the window ledge and I'm going to swing to the other one and then I'm going to pull myself up. And she was saying, don't be stupid, you know. But for some reason, I thought that I had the strength to do that. And as soon as I was hanging from the window ledge, it became really apparent that I didn't. Not only did I not have the strength to swing across, I also didn't have the strength to even pull myself back up and come back into the safety of the room, you know, on the window ledge that I was on already. So that was um, a problem. And... When you fell, which eventually you did, Mm. you broke quite a few bones, fractured a few, ended up in hospital. Mm. And that's where you sort of had your epiphany. Yeah. As a songwriter, right? And a human being, maybe. Both, yeah. Mm. As I say, I'd left school with this, like a lot of people, I suppose, you you have this vague idea. You think, oh, artists seem to have an interest in life and, I, and, and they look interesting. I want to be one. But I wasn't quite sure how to do it. I had started a band, you know, I'd started a band at school and, and I'd been doing the band since I'd left school, but it wasn't successful or anything. Well, I suppose it was part of the reason why I wrote the book as well, really, is that... Um, you might have this idea that to become an artist, you know, you, you should study the lives of other artists or, or it's like you're looking, it's lofty. You're looking into the clouds. You're, you're seeing something that's coming from another dimension or something like that, you know. And you kind of disregard the things that are nearest to you and, and that are all around you. And what I credit the fall from the window with doing... I was being, you know, like quite literally bringing me back down to earth. And then from that point, something clicked, you know, and I kind of realized that the things that could provide inspiration and stimulation and everything were were just like really just there. And I'd been overlooking them all the time, trying to look for these mythical artistic things. But actually the stuff of everyday life was what was interesting and was what you could turn into art if you wanted to. And so as soon as that had happened, I got really excited by that and tried to put it into practice. And I've never looked back since. Yeah. Because <laughs> one of the songs that you wrote at the beginning of that new phase mm. was I Scrubbed the Crabs That Killed Sheffield. Well, no, that's I mentioned that one in the book because that was like a harbinger. Can we call that? Sure. Is that the right use of that word? Oh, maybe like a sneak preview. Yeah. That was one, a really stupid song it was, as you can guess from the title, I Scrubbed the Crabs That Killed Sheffield. But it was, an, it was an example of writing about something that had really happened to me. I had a job in uh, Sheffield Castle Market and uh, our stall in the fish market, its speciality was selling crabs. And uh, 
usually they would arrive on a Saturday morning so that they were fresh, you know, because it's best if they're still alive immediately before you cook them. Apologies to, uh, you know, people who don't like that kind of thing. Um, but one one day, for some reason, they got delivered on the Friday evening before. And the guy who ran the stall, I don't know, he, he used to drink quite a lot and he didn't really think it through. And he, he put them all in some kind of like big black plastic bins of water to, thinking that they'd stay alive till the next day. But of course, they just couldn't survive in tap water rather than seawater. So they died and they kind of started rotting. And the first I knew of it was when I arrived for work and there was this terrible smell but the owner of the stall wouldn't you know he didn't do that he should have just chucked him away but mm. still we sold about i don't know 10 or 20 before like some kind of you know markets inspector guy came and and said he condemned them and made us throw them all away but i often wondered whether anybody died as a result of that so i wrote a song about it in the song, it kind of made it a bit more dramatic by saying, I scrubbed the crabs that killed Sheffield because we didn't sell that many. But um, So that was an example of trying to write about something that really happened, a kind of a daft song. So it, I, I had tried that, but it wasn't until I'd fallen out of the window that it became my kind of main modus operandi. Mm-hmm. And you're good in the book at not... Well, you make a point fairly early on that you don't want to demystify the process Throughout my career, if we can call it that, um, I think we can. At this you stage. know, people often have come up to me and said, "You know, how, how do I get started in songwriting? You know, and how, how do you, you know?" And that, I always try to answer them. I don't just walk past them or shut the door in the face, or whatever. But I haven't really got anything to say that will help because you just have to find some way of tuning into your own thing that will make it happen. But it's different for every person. But having said that, I do think every person is capable of it. And I think that's, again, what is exciting about it. I think that that creative ability and also the creative urge is in everybody. It's just whether you listen to it or take it seriously or not. Mm. And there are many details and anecdotes in the book that I think do shed light on the creative process and could even be, you know, retained as bits of advice for example, one of the items that you write about, because more or less the book is in the form of an item that you've found in the Toblerone loft, mm. uh, and then an investigation of the memories associated with that item, and sometimes that goes off tangentially to uh, musical things that you've done with pulp or whatever. Other times it's just the anecdote on its own, but all of it kind of feeds in in an indirect way to who you are and the work you do and and, the, and your kind of creative sensibility, if we can call it that. Mm. One of the things you talk about when you bring out the Tensai rhythm machine, guitar aoki machine that you have up there, mm. is the fact that you ended up cranking up your guitar and trying to sing louder than it mm. when you were in the process of songwriting. Yeah. And that's kind of a useful thing to do, or it was for you and maybe for other people. I don't know if you were doing it because you were diffident about your voice or whatever, but maybe it ended up feeding into the way that you sing and, and the very distinctive kind of delivery that you have. Yeah, I mean, I think I wanted to write songs and stuff, and I, I, I knew I had to sing because songs aren't really going to be great unless they're sung, you know, so you've got to do it. But I'm naturally quite a shy person, so uh, I was 
wary of doing that. And um, I remember when I was doing the Six Music show, you know, I used to get quite a lot of records sent to me. And I just kind of noticed that a lot of of the records had singing that was like... And, and, um, and at one point I thought, well, maybe all these records have just been made by people on their laptops in the bedroom and, and they're just trying not to disturb the people in the next flat. Yeah. Or the, because it's, you know, it's, and also it's, it's just not as embarrassing if you're going, but I think if you want to put emotion into what you're singing, then you have to kind of break through that barrier. And I'm not going to do it now because this is, you know, it's an expensive microphone. And I wouldn't want to just, you know, harm it. But, uh, you know, you have to, oh yeah, you've got to kind of project, yeah, start and belting. To do, and to do that without sounding silly like it does now, then you need to have some, so, you have to turn whatever you're playing, a keyboard or, or the guitar, up. So you have to make a bit of a strain to get over it. And somehow, by doing that, maybe some rogue emotion or something is going to happen. Yes, you're being forced to commit, which is really a, mm. a massive piece of the puzzle, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, that's a good way of putting it, yeah. Because you're right, I hadn't thought about that before, but of course that makes total sense. That Billie Eilish style, the very breathy, close mic singing which she does brilliantly and, and many people like that do brilliantly because you can get an awful lot of nuance in when you're, when you're that close. But what you do lose is, is that more declamatory style. Yeah, well, it doesn't have to be either or. I mean, that's yeah. what I like about and that's why the microphone was such a fantastic invention because until then it was opera and who wants to listen to that? You know, I mean, that, I hate it. It's horrible, isn't it? I mean, it really is horrible. And so, you know, a microphone meant that people could kind of sing almost in the way that they spoke. Mm -hmm. You didn't have to do it so much louder than speaking to somebody. So that opened up, like you say, a lot more possibilities and the fact for people to be nuanced in what they're doing. There's no nuance in opera. It's just like an orbital sander going for three <laughs> hours. That's what it is. For me, horrible. Um, so, but there are moments, and like, you know, again, like in real life, in a conversation, you might get agitated and you might want to get your point across, and there, then you'll sing out more. And so then you're getting more... It just gives you a bit more of an emotional range, I suppose. I took a trip down the river of time. I took a trip, took a trip down the river of time. I packed some things for my trip down the river of time. I packed some things for my trip down the river of time. I took a camping chair and a fancy camera so I could sit and take pictures from my chair of the river of time, of the river of time. have an object from my um, loft that I brought along. You can have this if you want. I've got one of them. Have you? Okay, good. I'm glad because I didn't really want to part with it. So can you describe what I'm holding? What you are holding, Adam, is like uh, I can't say it's a blow-up doll because it's not big enough, is it? So it's, it's an inflatable me. 
but it's got a very large head and then a small body. It says select on the back. I see, I remember these. They were. It wasn't just me. There were a number of other pop performers, but it was given away with Select Magazine. It was given away with Select Magazine, which was one of my favourite music mags, uh, towards the end of the 90s. And it's, a, as you say, a little inflatable thing, sort of in the shape of a club, really. And maybe it, it's a caricature, quite a good caricature, wouldn't you say? It's, yeah, it's not too bad. Yeah. It's not offensive, I don't think. I wonder if it's even an Andrew Collins caricature, because he's a very talented uh, artist. Anyway, I don't know. But there was you, there was the Gallaghers, I mm. think. There was Damon Albrand. And all the giants of what you refer to in your book as BR star T P star P, because yeah. yeah, you can't I, bear to say the word. No, I can't bear to say that word. <laughs> Sounds like Bridport. <laughs> Thatcher in your book gets the star treatment. Yeah, I can't bear to see her as well. Uh, when I say the star treatment, I mean the vowels replaced by stars so as not to spell out her name in its entirety. And uh, the B word gets the uh, star treatment as well. But you've kept your select blow-up caricature. It's somewhere in the house, yeah. I've seen it, not recently, but I'm, I'm sure it still exists, yeah. So it's not like you are trying to erase all evidence of that period from your life? No, that would be silly, you know. Yeah. I, it was just that it's name. just the movement that you kind of didn't feel... No, I mean, even... To people in other bands and stuff, I got on with all right. It's more just, it's the first part, the B-R-I-T bit. Which, right, which, right. Which kind of had unfortunate kind of jingoistic union jack-waving connotations, yeah. which I don't think anybody involved in it intended it to have, you know. Yeah, and it was it was very contrived idea of a, a scene and it was clear that a lot of these bands were very different and didn't have that much in common and yet they were just smooshed together in a way that was guaranteed to sell music mags and but felt fun as a fan at the time mm. it felt like oh yeah this is we're in a thing we're living through a, a thing it was sort of exciting i mean there were a lot of good bands around yeah it was exciting it definitely was exciting when you could feel that it was starting to happen. Yeah. So I formed the band at school in like 1979 or something. So we'd already been going like over 10 years. So with very, you know, absolutely no success. So to suddenly feel like this indie um, backwater was getting gentrified or get or people were taking notice of it was exciting. Yeah, it was. It was uh, the, the fact that you were going to be allowed in the mainstream in some way was was intoxicating because I, you know, I'd like many kids of my generation, I'd grown up with that fantasy of being a pop star, so that that always been something at the back of my mind. But I suppose as the years passed, I kind of thought, well, that's not really going to happen. And then, lo and behold, weirdly, it seemed like it could happen, and then, indeed, it did happen. So it was, yeah, that was exciting. And not you, many people get to realise those kind of right. fantasies. I mean, firemen do, I suppose, but that's about it. <laughs> firemen and spacemen. Spacemen, there's not that many of them. No, but you also, like me, thought about being a spaceman a lot. Or did you think about being a spaceman or did you just like all the world of sci-fi and uh, and the TV shows? Because one of the objects in the book is a lunar landing module. Mm. I'm going to come back to the music in a second because I do want to 
ask a little bit more about that time. But I did um, the stuff you were saying about Star Trek and TV shows. And what was the magazine that you used to love? Oh, yeah, there was a comic called Countdown. Right. You know, I was very young when I got the, you know, because the, the moon landing happened when I was almost six. So space was really happening, you know, space, they really did land on the moon. But then at the same time, Star Trek was on the telly and there was this comic that was laid out like a newspaper and it had like had articles like saying you want to be an astronaut or UFOs, do they really exist? You know, so it was all... At that age, I couldn't really discern between what was really happening and what was they were just saying was going to happen in the comics. So I kind of just assumed, because all this stuff was going on, that by the time I was growing up, it would just be quite a commonplace thing to be living in space. You know, there would be big space stations orbiting the Earth, and maybe it would be a choice. Like, you know, it would be like moving to a posh neighborhood, you know, move into space. So um, I think that had an effect on how seriously I, I took life on Earth. <laughs> Not very. Now, if I think about going to space, I don't think I'd like it. <laughs> I mean, do you, I, I really don't. I think that, I think I that like, uh, being weightless would probably make me feel really <laughs> nauseous. It was like, oh, a terrible upset stomach after that. You know, nothing would stay down. It was just floating around all over the place, you know. And... Uh, <laughs> I think, you know, 2001, I mentioned that in the book. And I think I I watched that again not that long ago. And I think that gets a bit of that, the the kind of dread of space, of being so alone. You know, there's that bit where one of the... It's where they first kind of realise that Hal's gone a bit rogue and it kind of... Something goes wrong, he's supposed to be uh, fixing something and then suddenly he's just being cut and he's just floating off in space. And that idea of Yeah, being a, a single living being just out in that kind of vast vacuum emptiness of space i wouldn't i don't think i would like that loneliness <laughs> now no. i think when i was a kid i thought oh, yeah it'd be great but now it would uh, scare me to death i think yeah i know i had that realization not that long ago as well that the absolute terror of doing a spacewalk and being confronted with the possibility that you could if something went wrong just drift off into nothingness and then run out of air and oh yeah. Absolutely terrifying. It's not worth it. I I went, you know, like there was all this stuff quite recently, wasn't it, about people going to Mars. And there was some rumour, I don't know if it was ever really true, but saying they were looking for volunteers who would go on a Mars mission, but you couldn't come back. Right. But the thing of, you know, you had to just go there and then that's it, you're living on yeah. Mars and you See can't ya. come back. I wouldn't do that. <laughs> no, I wouldn't do that either. Um, so what I was getting to before was oh yes so so we were talking about the excitement of suddenly finding yourself a a sort of pop star well an actual pop star uh in the mid 90s and being lumped in with this movement i liked you because you seem to be above it all in a certain way not snooty or superior but separate from it and operating it was definitely much more uh relatable and exciting because your references seem to be more arty and more left field than a lot of the other stuff that was going on. So I liked that. And then, of course, there was the look and the shapes you were throwing and the fact that you weren't, you didn't seem to be tribal in the way that a lot of other bands just were by default. Mm. And the way that a lot of 
pop musicians end up being. You know, it ends up. It's weird how people in movements that you would think are kind of countercultural or anti-establishment end up being very tribal. Like you mentioned, going to、uh, a fall gig. Were you actually at the fall gig when someone、mm. shouted out, or when Marky Smith shouted out? Oh to... right, yeah, it, it, it was a fall concert, and、um, it was at Sheffield Polytechnic. And at some point, he just went, "Hello, Susie Sue, how are you doing?" Like it, it, there was a because there was a girl there with the proper, you know, kind of punk look, very spiky hair,、uh, leather jacket, who、so、was kind of taking the piss out of that and. Yeah, he was a big influence on me, Marky Smith. In in that way, he used to just look like a a normal guy that you'd see in a betting shop or something. <laughs> he just used to wear those kind of clothes. It was quite exciting, especially because I was buying clothes from jumble sales at the time. So Marky Smith was quite a, a good inspiration because he showed how you could take things and kind of alter them just by the way that you wore them, or, or the fact that the music you made didn't go with like a. Seventies shirt or whatever, you know.、Mm-hmm. So that was good news for me because that's all I could afford to do was to buy clothes from a jumble sale. So、uh, I couldn't afford a leather jacket. So it was.、Uh, I wouldn't have worn one anyway. I don't think. Then the other distinctive thing, of course, certainly towards the end of the nineties, was the way you moved and your dancing. And you talk about dancing in the book, trips to the Limit Club.、Mm. And is that where you suddenly realised? What the point of dancing was? Well, the Limit Club was like it was a nightclub in Sheffield, very poor hygiene, but it was like it, it was the only place that played like alternative music. And、uh, even though Sheffield is quite a big city, I think a, a lot of things about Sheffield are a bit like a, a, a small town or whatever. So, for instance, in the Limit Club, like I say, it was the only place for alternative music, but it had to kind of cater for everybody there. So you would get like a section where. They would play like three psycho Billy songs, and so all these guys with plaid shirts, but with the sleeves cut off, so you had a bit of a kind of cap sleeve look. And they would all get on and kind of chuck each other around while there was a psycho Billy track on. And then, then it'd f- go to goth, and then it'd do new romantic. It would give everybody a fair crack of the whip. Very, very nice for that. It was just because music was playing and people were dancing. And sometimes you would run out of things to say. I suppose that maybe that's why I first started dancing. And then when I did it, I got into it because I'd, I'd always been into music. But it was more like you listen to it and you like a tune, and it's, it's something that's happening inside your head. You know, especially nowadays, music is something that's happening really inside your head because most people listen to it on on headphones. And then you were suddenly in this place where it was really loud and there was bass. You know, and, and you could actually feel if you stood really near the speakers at the back, you could feel it like making your trousers flap about. So it was like, wow, you know, this is like a whole new dimension to music. It's kind of like a physical force. You can actually feel the floor moving and stuff. So that was great because then you were feeling music in your body, not just in your head. You could actually feel it moving through you. And everybody's self-conscious when they first try to dance. They think people are looking at them, but then you suddenly realise everybody's not bothered about you at all. And anyway, it's quite dark, and there's some lights that are flashing on and off, and then you can kind of really. It's great because if you keep going after maybe one or two songs, then your brain will just start to kind of turn off a bit, and then you kind of just react to it physically. And to discover that music had this other side to it、uh, was, again, yeah, like you say, a bit of an epiphany. Really, you call it ego death on the <laughs> dance floor. Yeah, 
regression back to an older, more primitive way of being, a state of bliss and non-being. Yeah, I mean, for someone like me who is quite self-conscious, mm. that is hard to do, and it's only I've only successfully done it a few times. But a lot of the time, I find myself imitating other people, and I imagine a lot of people over the years have thrown what we can now call Jarvis Cocker-like moves. Were you aware of anyone else dancing and throwing those kinds of shapes before you? Were you thinking of anyone when you were doing those things? I mean, I used to watch Top of the Pops and stuff, and and so I, that was the first time I saw bands performing. You know, I think before I ever saw a band on a stage, mm. I would have seen them on the TV screen. So obviously, people on Top of the Pops would be acting up to the camera a bit and maybe moving more than they would in a normal concert. Also because they, they were miming, so they didn't have to worry about like missing a note. So they could really like give it that one yeah. and or whatever. So it probably evolved from the thing that you mentioned from dancing in the limit. So I realized I could dance and that it was, you know, you could react to music. And then, so then you could react to your own music as you were performing it. It's like, as it kind of passes through your body on its way to come out of your mouth and um, it kind of sets off these kind of things, you know, mm. and it's a nice feeling because it's like, it's like you're riding it or something, you know, as it, as it's happening. And, um, it's pleasurable. Yeah. I suppose you could trace a line, either consciously or unconsciously, between things like Bowie pointing at the camera on that Top of the Pops performance mm. of Starman and a similar sort of move you used to do, but you embellished it a little bit and turned it into something a bit more saucy. You know what I mean? Like moving your finger a twist, around. twisty finger. Yeah. And then Chris <laughs> Morris imitated that very... Well, when... all right, with his blouse thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that's the trouble. I mean, that's the other, because, yeah, I didn't mind Chris Morris doing this thing, but then the thing that made me really reconsider my move or get to a bit over self-conscious about them was stars in their eyes. Oh. Somebody did me on stars in their eyes. This kid called Gareth from Leeds. I got to know him, actually. He'd gone to the audition to do Freddie Mercury but was told that they already had like three Freddie Mercury's or whatever. So they said, can you do anybody else? And he said, oh, yeah, I can do Jarvis. So then he did me and he got picked. And so somebody alerted me to the fact that somebody was going to be on Stars in Their Eyes doing me. So I watched it. And, and that was very, very, that was profoundly disturbing. <laughs> yeah, it really was. I'm sure. It was because, as I say, I... I think that, that whatever moves I had hadn't, yeah, they'd obviously come from watching the telly or dancing, but they hadn't been self-consciously worked out. I hadn't worked with someone down at Pineapple Dance Studios, you know, like uh, Arlene Phillips, and, you know, like, oh, yeah, nice. So I think that, that little bit of a shoulder shake here, yeah, lots of very sexy, nothing, you know, so I hadn't done that. Yeah. I was aware that I moved on stage, but I wasn't like doing it in front of a mirror or anything like that. So I didn't know exactly what it looked like. Then suddenly there's this bloke from Leeds, which made it even more painful, doing it. And, and I could kind of recognize it. Obviously, I'd seen myself in videos and stuff like that. And then suddenly I thought, oh, God, you know, it's like somehow it's, it meant that it wasn't mine anymore then because hmm. I could be done by somebody else. I didn't stop moving, but it made me kind of think about that. If, if you'll allow me to go off on, an, on another tangent for this was... Please. So the reason I know his name and stuff like that was maybe in an attempt to uh, heal. 
after this trauma of seeing somebody do me and making it making me feel weird was we actually took him out on tour with us oh. <laughs> and we did a tour after we did a record called this is hardcore which is like pulp's dark album yeah man and uh, we started with this song called the fear which is a dark song and the stage was all backlit with you know the band was just silhouettes and then gareth was with us and he came on with my best suit on and walked to the front of the stage doing the Jarvis shape. And then I, but I was singing from behind a speaker. So everybody thought it was him and they were all cheering. And then I actually walked on as well. And so then there were two Jarvises uh-huh. and the crowd, it was quite good actually. It did work quite well. It was a bit like being at Wimbledon. People were like looking from one Jarvis to the other thinking who was the real one. Yeah. And, um, and then eventually we kind of, you know, revealed the trick. But then he got thrown off. Well, no, we didn't throw him off the tour, but he he ruined my suit. Mate, how did yeah. you do that? Well, he was slightly fatter than me, and he did like a <laughs> an extravagant leg move and, and just ripped the whole arse out of the out of the trousers. So that was the end of that suit, and it was a really nice suit. <laughs> so the whole thing was coming apart at the seams. Oh, yes. Great segue. <laughs> I mean, were, when I heard that album... That, so so that was at the end uh, of a, a turbulent decade, exciting decade, all sorts of shenanigans, ups and downs. But um, the track This Is Hardcore was, was a, a real favorite of mine, but it really did seem to be tapping into something quite apocalyptic. I've seen this storyline played out so many times before, and that you know, superficially, it was about kind of just someone in the throes of a, an excessive, decadent lifestyle or something and feeling like they might get sucked down the plug hole at any moment. But was there also a sense at that point of, well, today, as we speak, Russia has just invaded the Ukraine? Yeah, we should mention that because that's like a cloud hanging over this whole podcast isn't it yes i guess so yeah i mean both both of us i think had the same thought when we woke up this morning and looked at the news of feeling odd about going off to do a podcast where we're just sort of chatting about pop culture about sort of essentially ephemeral things especially when they're compared to the misery that's going to be unleashed by Mm. this invasion were you beginning to feel or did you ever feel as a pop star, just sort of overwhelmed by, like, what am I doing? Does the universe need this? Did you ever have any any of those kind of existential crises? Yeah, I think, well, because, it, as I say, I, I'd wanted to be one since the age of six or seven, you know, as a kind of, you know, on the same order, saying, oh, I want to be an astronaut when I grow up or mm-hmm. whatever. And then it happened, and so, um, but I was quite old when it happened. I was like... 32 I think which is quite old it's like a tennis player you know you're old at 32 aren't you and in pop star things you know 32 is quite old to first become one yeah I think it was just maybe just like it just didn't live up to what I thought because it was like when when I'd thought about it as a kid it was I think you know getting famous it's a common thing that people want to do and and I think it's almost taken over from that thing that used to exist in the olden days of, you know, live a good life and you'll go to heaven, mm-hmm. you know. So things may be shit, but, you know, be good and you're going to have this fantastic life afterwards. And I think people think of becoming famous in, it's the same order of thing. It's like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm fed up, I'm, I'm not saying, but if I was famous, 
you know, if I, if I was prince, people would just open every door for me and my every wish would be their command and all this. So I got that, you know, I went to heaven, but I wasn't dead. <laughs> and so and that was the problem. If I'd have been dead, it would have been okay. You know, that's what heaven is supposed to be, another dimension. But here it was happening to me in reality. And it was hard to square the expectation of it with the fact that I still was Jarvis with all his hang-ups that I thought were magically going to dissolve as soon as we got a record in the top ten, you know. I would never have a problem again. Well, that's not what happens, is it, in life? It, you're always stuck with yourself, no matter where or what you do. Mm. But did you ever reach a crisis point where you thought, I'm going to jack it in completely and just go off and build wells in Africa or whatever? <laughs> I should have done something useful like that, yeah. I, I didn't... Maybe I didn't have the imagination to do that. I don't know. I'm glad you didn't, because the thing is that underlying this is the fact that, obviously, you could say, I have to say this because I, a lot of what I do is monumentally trivial. <laughs> but, um, you know, you need the light and the shade, right? Uh, you can't just have Putin invading Ukraine. If there was no music and silliness to offset that, then there wouldn't be any point. No, I can't imagine a life without humour. But that's why I think, really, that's why we invented those things, to give us a respite from that. I think so. Because, you know, and you know, we're forgetting about the pandemic now because we're into another disaster, aren't we? We've, like, pandemic, so over that, you know. Uh, now we're into a... a that was a the good old days. Yeah, world conflict now. But... Um, that was a thing that happened there. You know, I think a lot of people who I spoke to seemed to really rediscover music in a way, as a way of, you know, like, listen to an album that you really like, maybe close your eyes as well or whatever, and just float off and forget about the kind of things that were going on. And I think music has always done that. Not just music, any art form allows you to kind of step out of your actual physical situation and go off into another world for a while and so yeah i think you cling to it more when things get tough because i feel the same way that you do about pop music right mm. as an art form and the book is called good pop bad pop which originally i thought meant that it was a book about parenting <laughs> i thought oh he's going to talk about his kids and all the struggles he's had as a dad <laughs> well you know what i mean it isn't that no but I did like the fact that, yeah, pop is another word for dad. And I think in the absence of my dad, because mm. my father left when I was seven, that's probably why I took a lot more notice of, like, the TV and, and stuff, because you're just looking for clues on how the world works and how adults behave. And because I didn't have a father figure to look at for that, I cast around in other places. I've always thought that maybe that's why I wanted to write songs, that I listened to songs for clues about how relationships worked, but that was a terrible place to listen for it because love songs, you know, are always going, yeah, everything's good, baby, love you all the time. And relationships aren't that easy. So that's what made me want to write my own songs to kind of say, no, it's not like that. It's like this. People fall out and sometimes you think you're going to get off with somebody and then it doesn't work, but then they get off with your friend or whatever, you know. And, and I wanted to put what I thought was the reality of love relationships rather than this 
idealised version that you heard on the radio. Yes. The thing, though, to, to come back to Chris Morris's parody of Pulp, which was in Brassai, mm. and uh, he called the, uh, the band... Um, Blouse. Blouse. And the lead singer was called Purvis Grundy. And uh, the track was Mio Myra. And he kind of characterized you as fixated on things that were outre and verboten. And uh, so it was you kind of writing a pervy song about Myra Hindley. <laughs> and did you, how did you feel about what you did being characterized that way? Because the subject matter and the way you sang about relationships, the way you've just described, mm. did seem quite weirdly out of step with what people expected from pop. It seemed much more sort of seedy, but it had this lovely pop sound, but the actual lyrics were evoking something more downbeat and uh, seedy. But the way that Chris saw it, and I guess the way that a lot of people saw it, was he, he totally fixated on you as this uber perv. Well, that's okay. I didn't know Chris Morris at the time. I've got to know him a bit since then. I had nobody but myself to blame there, I suppose. That I, maybe I played up that thing up a bit. But I, I don't know. I, I just wanted... I, I, I didn't want to be boring, you know what I mean? I... Having loved pop music from an early age, I was always sometimes dispirited, you know, when you would get somebody who seemed so exotic on stage and then you would see an interview with them mm -hmm. and they'd be going, yeah, well, we were in L.A. and, you know, uh, we are in this fantastic 24-track studio and we just got like a good sound going and I just think, Fuck, please, you're making this music that seems to be like from another world and then you, you're talking like you're mending a car or something. So I, I just thought I wanted to kind of live it out, you know, and as long as it wasn't boring, then it was okay. Mm -hmm. So maybe I overdid some things, I don't know. Sorry. You have another object there, and it's your... It's the final object in the book, in fact. Oh, yeah, this plastic apple. Tell us about the apple and why it's important to you. You can hear... So that's it's a plastic apple, and I'll now remove the lid... There we go. And then there are various little things in here. I don't know where I picked this apple up from. It's just a green plastic apple. For some reason, I've always had a kind of obsession with small things from when I was a kid. And obviously, small things are really easy to lose. So it's good to put them in a container. So, um, well, you could have a look. This, have a look at this, Adam. I, want you, I don't know if you know what that is. Wow, what is that? Is that an... Oh, this is like a, a, a little badge, like mm. a pin badge with a dangly plastic uh, thing hanging. It looks like an earring. That's the telly tower that's in Berlin. It's like it's like the equivalent of our post office tower. Oh. And it used to be in East Berlin when the city was divided and there's a revolving restaurant at the top, okay. which I did actually go to. I, I went to... Berlin about six months before the wall came down and I remember having a cup of coffee in that revolving restaurant and looking down into East Berlin and it's the tidiest traffic I've ever seen because at that time the only car you could get was a Trabant yes and they were only available in three colors like yellow blue and like beige I think 
So all the traffic was that, you know, there was no other colour. And, and it really made an impression on me. Like Lego traffic. Yeah, it was nice. Did you do a kind of Bowie sightseeing mission on that trip? Not on that trip. I have done that since. I've been not in the house, but I've been to the apartment building that where he shared a flat with Iggy. Yeah. And I was impressed. There is like a bit of a plaque there now. Yeah. Were you into all that stuff, the history of those albums and the Eno records? Yeah, I, I like Low. Hmm. I always used to think that David Bowie's albums weren't as exciting as, as his singles. Oh, yeah. I think in your book you say, you know, you, you write, obviously I know you, you've got a, a big love of David. Yes. And and um, you mentioned The Changes One Bowie album, mm. which that was the first album I ever bought, actually. Right. But that was like a collection of his singles. And I don't know his albums as well, except Low, because I think that that's kind of a, I know you, you you didn't like that record when you first heard it. No, it you? took me a while to yeah. get into it. I just thought, what the hell is this? This is totally unlistenable. Yeah. Pretentious, I thought it was. Well, I remember John Peel playing it a lot and um, and taping bits. And then I, I really like that record because it's it's like you can listen to the first side and it's all kind of spiky and everything. And mm. then you put the other side on and then you're just like, ooh, this is, you don't know where you are, do you? It's yeah. just like you're floating in some strange forest or something so obviously that's old that record now but every time i listen to it i i never feel like i really have heard every single part of it somehow it seems to retain some mystery i don't know some records can do that um i don't know how it does it but somehow it, it seems to manage to distract you so you'll always miss one bit and then the next time you listen you hear a new bit so yeah that's that's probably my favorite bowie album i think it is mine too that and hunky dory yeah, Unky Dory is like, uh, that reminds me, people always used to put that on when a party was starting to wind down. Mm -hmm. And it's so it's that kind of thing of when people have been intoxicated and they're still kind of a bit intoxicated. You know, it's not like you've got, it's not hangover music, but it's like everything's starting to dry up a bit now and, we're, and something about the sound of it really works in that environment, I think. It's like a pillow. It's sort of soft and warm. It has a golden glow around it. You know what I mean? I guess that's Ken Scott who recorded that record. Yeah, it's definitely something to do with the sound of it. It's yeah. like, it sounds like it's not in a very big space, almost like you might be in a bedroom. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure they didn't record it in a bedroom, but, you know, it sounds, it's not a big, expansive record, is it? It's more domestic. Yeah, it's lovely. What else is in your apple? Um, there's a little, that's not that big patch, there's a badge. Do you remember there was a magazine called Looking? Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm looking good. There's some examples of Plasticraft. Um, oh, yeah. Remind people what Plasticraft was? It was a hobby that kids could do. Uh, it's like setting things in clear acrylic resin. Mm. It was quite common, but very, very toxic fumes you got from the the resin as it cured, as it... You had to kind of put it in, leave it for a, a day or so. Oh, this is a, a half penny coin. Mm. So somebody's gone to the trouble of of mounting a half p coin in clear plastic, uh, which would have been a cufflink at one point. I don't know. I, I, that intrigued me because I don't think it's so common now. But people did used to have like sovereign cufflinks, you know, like mm -hmm. gold sovereigns, and and 
a gold sovereign is worth about £400, I think, a solid gold one. So they're obviously a status symbol. So that makes a half pence not a status symbol or, or like a lack of status symbol yeah. or a negative status symbol. So the fact that somebody had gone to the trouble of doing that. Low status symbol. I liked that. So uh, yeah. that, I think that's why I, I hung on to that. Well, you say in the book early on, you're into the idea that a culture could reveal more of itself through its throwaway items yeah. than through its supposedly revered artifacts. And uh, you say that's an idea that still fascinates you. Yeah, it does. I think there is some truth in that. Yeah, definitely. I think I, I think it's the stuff in between and also the culture, all this stuff that you're hoovering up, all the TV. It's, you know, history tends to be focused on big world events, wars, etc., and crises of that kind. But in the meantime, you've got all this social history bubbling away that is mainly made up for most people in their ordinary day-to-day lives of all this tiny ephemeral stuff and these plastic knickknacks and songs and TV shows and yeah but we spend our time on them don't we 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 yeah. fill our time with them and 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 they do also tend to stay with you and that's the thing that I thought was interesting like people considered pop music to be that at one time didn't they I mean that they thought it was just throwaway crap you know and uh, and yet people are still listening to Phil Spector records now but at the time, they, I think they used to call pop music like chewing gum for the ears or whatever. You know, it was just supposed to be something like you listen to, you spit it out. But it, that hasn't happened. It, it stayed around, you know. And so uh, that says something about us. There's something that we like about that. Somehow, at its best, pop can kind of distill something about us that we're maybe not even that aware of ourselves, but we like it and we want to... We're like Teletubbies. We want it to happen again and again. Yeah, some of us are more like Teletubbies than others. This is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area and spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com slash Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code BUXTON to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Yes. Wait. Continue. Just keep on Rosie, come on, let's head back. Little jog, see if we get a fly past. Good fly past from the hairy bullet. Welcome back, Podcats. How are you doing? That was Jarvis Cocker, of course talking to me there 
one of the all-time great voices, I would say. And really enjoyed reading his book, which I recommend, Good Pop, Bad Pop. Link in the description. There's also links to a couple of Jarvis videos there. A lovely animated video for the song that Jarvis did for the French Dispatch movie. Wes Anderson movie. Aileen was the track that Jarvis did. There is that Brass Eye Pulp parody that we mentioned there, Mio Myra by Purvis Grandi. There's also a link to a thing I saw the other day on YouTube which I thought was quite good um, by a bloke called Pat Finity, American guy. And he is one of several people on YouTube. When I say several, I mean hundreds or maybe even thousands, mainly kind of nerdy white guys, music fans. And they do these analyses. Well, there's a lot of people on YouTube doing sort of video essays, I would call them. And some are better than others. But this one I saw was quite good. And Pat Finity's series is called What Makes This Song Stink? So there's a lot of people doing videos that analyse music and try and summarise what is brilliant about the way a certain song or artist works. There's a bloke called Rick Beato who is quite well known in that field, an older musician. Pat Finity is a little younger and he's doing a kind of antidote to that superficially, but he does it really well. And I picked one by Weezer. I think it's Beverly Hills by Weezer. So not a song that I ever had strong feelings about one way or another. But Pat Finity is coming at the song from the point of view of a disappointed Weezer mega fan. He liked their early albums, especially liked Pinkerton, which I did like as well, actually, when that came out. I thought that was pretty good. I remember we were making the Adam and Joe show in those days, towards the end of the 90s. And uh, I listened to Pinkerton a lot when I was editing toy movies. But anyway, that was the high watermark for Weezer as far as Pat Finity was concerned. Um, And then Pinkerton famously didn't do so well. And they changed tack and went more mainstream as a band thereafter and found quite a lot of success. And Pat was disappointed by that. So he does a whole essay which is about his relationship with the band, essentially. And it's um, kind of about growing up and becoming a bit disillusioned and wanting to connect with the things that meant a lot to you when you were younger and moving on and also the expectations, sometimes unreasonable expectations that you have of your heroes and the difficulty that fans feel as far as letting their heroes just live their lives and do what they want and develop at their own pace and... um, So it's quite good. I enjoyed it. There was a lot there, I thought, and it was well put together. Um, That's my recommendation for you this week. Another music thing. 
and uh, link in the description. Thanks very much to Seamus Murphy Mitchell for his hard work on this episode. Much appreciated. Thanks once again to Jarvis Cocker and the Cockernauts, <laughs> the people he works with. I don't suppose they call themselves the Cockernauts. Thanks very much to Helen Green. She does the artwork for the podcast. Thanks to the people at Acast that help support the podcast. Much appreciated. But thanks most of all to you, the hardcore who make it to the absolute end of the podcast. You made it through the whole conversation with the famous person. And now you made it through all this waffle as well. Thanks. I appreciate it so much that I'm going to hug you. Come here. Come here. Okay. Until next time, go carefully. I love you. Bye!